0: Sitting now. Hello there and welcome to episode seventy nine of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um joining me this week, as ever, the uh what's the word I'm looking for? The mysterious Mark Satir. It
1: shrinks like. Shrinks like a mysterious. <laughs> yes. I'm 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 doing very well actually, thank you very much. Actually and um I've saw a friend of mine recently called Paul. Paul Christian, known to some, who's a druid and a minister of religion and has also been the head of the uh, Chiltern Nimmerton Grove for twenty two years. So that's something to celebrate, so there we are.
0: So what are we talking about this week, Mr. Satir?
1: Well, this this episode It starts with a vision, a vision, a vision of a fantastical naked woman with red scarlet hair cascading down her back, riding upon a ferocious beast, a monstrous saber-toothed tiger, because we are talking about Jack Parsons, the the legend, the legend and legacy of Jack Whiteside Parsons, a rocket scientist. Uh, again visionary I've said that already and um a fascinating and important character and scientist. And scientist who who, 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 who today uh, we wouldn't have um uh travel and travel beyond the stars without uh, without him because of the fuel the solid fuel work he did or the well he explored the the different things of fuel.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm it's interesting it's not the first time we've covered um jack parsons on the show we had uh, peter gray recently before that actually a long time ago we did a show on parsons with brian butler um filmmaker who is associated with kenneth anger it also links into uh, to parsons in a you know in a roundabout yeah, kind of we,
1: way we've mentioned him a few times and he's got a uh a, a, a crater named after him on the dark side of the moon simply mm-hmm. called parsons
0: yeah so there we are. I think what I wanted to do with this episode was to get a more forensic look at the man um, and, and but also a, a more of a broad overview because obviously we tend to focus on the occult side of, yeah. of, of these characters so this time we have uh, Mr George Pendle, someone we've been, I've personally wanted to have this guy on the show for a long time um, and uh, you know we started arranging this interview a while ago and uh, um, yeah finally we've made it happen.
1: I got very excited about uh, the opportunity to speak to Mr. Pendle—it's—it's it's become a bit of a cliche that I say I'm very privileged to do to do this, and I—I'm I, going to have to come up with some new cliches because, <laughs> I, yes, again, no, that's how I, I generally feel, and uh, it, it was great. Uh, they say never meet your heroes, but I tell you what—I've been a very fortunate person uh, doing this podcast. So, I'm, I'm there. We are
0: there. You go. Excellent. Anyway, let's uh, go and talk to Mr. George Pendle. Hello, George Pendle. It's so great to finally have you on the show. Um, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please?
2: So I'm a writer uh, and uh, an author living in Washington, D.C. Uh, I grew up in England on the East Coast uh, in Essex. Uh, but uh, And I worked for the Times of London um, for a while in London. But eventually I moved over to uh, the United States in 2001, uh, September 10th, 2001. Uh, and so that kind of... Uh, uh, Maybe feel as though I had to stay for a little longer uh, than than just a short stay. Um, ever since then, I've been writing for various newspapers and magazines. Um, written a few more books, uh, basically for so whoever will have me. And I try to write about those kind of loose threads on the the, the blanket uh, of history. Those ones that you know perhaps people haven't really paid attention to. Um, and I try to bring out why those stories are important.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, so um let's talk recently oh uh, you you wrote a book a uh, uh, quite a while ago now um an excellent book called strange angel the otherworldly life of rocket scientist john whiteside parsons um and obviously uh listeners of our show will probably know that there was a a tv show of the same name that came out i think three or four years ago now um uh, that's right uh, could you talk a bit about your involvement in in that series
2: yeah, it, it was um, a series based on on, on my book. Um, they optioned it and they asked me to be a, a, a kind of consultant um, for the TV series, uh, and they were very kind, very nice. But I think it was rather—it's um, a common thing in Hollywood for scriptwriters and directors to want to be as far away as possible from the author of a book. <laughs> I think they're rather concerned that uh, you know I'd leap in with all sorts of suggestions that were impractical or. Um, ridiculous, uh, but uh, I was involved as a consultant, and you know the show ran for two series, um, which was you know not bad. It was quite fun. It was it was a somewhat of a an imaginative reconstruction of my book, um, which I didn't mind. They had you know paid for it. They could do what they wanted with it, but. Um, it was, uh, you know, I, I think it really got bits of Parsons, the Parsons story right. Uh, I think he got a few other things a bit wrong. Uh, but in the end, I, I was, you know, I was happy to see, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. It was, uh, it was an interesting insight into Hollywood and, you know, interesting in other ways because, you know, Parsons himself had always wanted to kind of get into the movie business, at some, you know, when he was a young man. So it was interesting to, to tell his story uh, in the very business that he wanted to be in.
1: And uh, how did you find the lead? I think it's uh, an actor called Jack Rayner. He played uh, Parsons himself. Did you, did you? Were you pleased with that casting?
2: Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, he's an Irish actor. Um, In fact, my cast were English or, or Irish. Um, I I had very little to do with the actual uh, casting of it. In fact, I had nothing to do with it. But I thought he did a good job. He had that kind of, you know, Errol Flynnish quality that I think Parsons had, you know, able to carry a moustache wall, <laughs> um, he could, you know, he was, you know, a bit of a, a rake, um, but he could also do the studious element to Parsons, which kind of uh, under, you know, uh, underlaid his, his kind of rakish personality. So I thought he did a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, and also he, uh, he went on to be in the summer... What was it called? That film? Summer? Oh, Midsummer. Midsummer. Yeah. Soon after. I don't know what he's doing at the moment, but I wonder if he's going to have a bit of a cultish niche. But I mean, I, I thought it was great. I mean, I I really enjoyed the whole series, and I thought they took artistic license, but especially in the second season. But I was generally, I was generally disappointed that we didn't see it through because the la- the third part would have been the more. Would actually, been the most interesting, and it is a fascinating story. It's an absolutely fascinating story. There's no need really to overegg the cake, but um, yeah, I thought they did, a, yeah, but still, and also as well, it was filmed, wasn't it? In uh, some of it was actually filmed at Caltech, you know, in the actual locations and things. So yeah.
2: that's right. I mean, it was you know, for them, it was a very, <laughs> it was a very an uh, inexpensive film for them to do because although it was period, it was all in the very area where they were shooting. Um, but it, I, I agree. I, I I felt that Parson's story doesn't really need much uh, exaggeration. You know, it, it's uh, a, and, and I th- oh, you know as, as well as you, I, I was very sad that it ended when it did, which is on the arrival of L. Ron Hubbard. And I
0: know no how that.
2: <laughs> for a while, there were a few. You know, I mean, should we be suspicious that a film studio in a city in which, you know, a uh, a quasi-religion runs a lot of the film studios or has a lot of famous actors in their employ should suddenly shut down a TV show featuring Elron Hubbard? Um, there are a few little mysterious, you know, uh, or, or other thoughts that this may have been some kind of backhanded, uh, you know, underhanded rather. Uh, Uh, skullduggery going on to kind of scupper the tv show but uh, i can't confirm or deny that
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's intriguing okay so um let's talk a little bit let's sort of set the scene for those who um aren't well versed in in jack parsons it sort of set the scene for the uh like the kind of the the social climate he was he was growing up in and what was his kind of childhood like
2: so Jack Parsons, he, he grew up in Pasadena, which is this uh, this wealthy kind of suburb, really, of Los Angeles, where it was at the time. Um, and he was, you know, he had a, a wealthy upbringing. He was a single child. He was brought up by his, his mother. His father had kind of left the family when he was young. Uh, and he was brought up uh, with his mother and his grandfather in Pasadena. And I think he was a rather spoiled child. Uh, you know, he was definitely a kind of rather a bullied child um, and uh, his one great solace even though you know he was quite well off he was bullied a lot at school his one great solace was science fiction uh, magazines um, particularly things like amazing stories uh, he was a great fan of these and I think he kind of like many people like many of us who were <laughs> bullied when we were young we kind of you know sink into great fantastical worlds uh, and he was aided in that by you know, the great kind of uh, golden age uh, writers uh, of the time. Uh, Now, the thing was, uh, this was his kind of childhood, but it ended pretty abruptly, the the kind of privilege, uh, when the Depression came and his family lost a lot of money and uh, his grandfather died and he and his mother were kind of left as a single parent family in Pasadena without, you know, much wealth. Uh, And it was then that he kind of started to kind of look around and see – what he could do with his life, and and I think because of the sci-fi comics, because he was so, you know, uh, convinced that the sci-fi comics weren't just a fancy, but they were predictive, that they would tell the future, as many of them did. Uh, that you know he didn't have to look far before he saw Caltech, and and there at Caltech, at the California Institute of Technology, there were many scientists working on you know telescopes, uh, astronomy, uh, you know creating crazy things like helicopters which were absolutely you know beyond the pale at the time this is in the, the 30s and uh, and with his kind of belief that the rockets he had read about in science fi- science fiction magazines could could somehow be brought into reality he went to Caltech and 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 started to ask around and see whether there was anybody who would help him make rockets
1: mm. and it's also in, in- important for us to remember now that at the time the sober orthodox scientific opinion was that space travel space rockets and you know which featured in space fiction was was were were impossible that they couldn't happen you know you you couldn't travel through space Uh, it was just it was just something you because you can get a a grip on it or whatever but uh it was uh so you know and so there was a there was a whole it was really was far more fiction than it is now. It's interesting how these things have sort. Of, some of these ideas have crept into reality.
2: That's absolutely right. I mean, at the time, you know, Parsons was reading these comics in the thirties, uh, and when he went to Caltech to see if he could build rockets with anyone there, no universities had any courses on rocketry. You know, it was still kind of used as as a kind of sign of madness. You say, "Oh, he's the sort of guy who thinks you can send a rocket to the moon." You know. It was seen as ridiculous, which in hindsight seems crazy. That you know, 30 years before the moon landing, people were like laughing at the idea of going to space as ridiculous. Uh, it's 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 a strange kind of period. He really straddles a kind of Victorian age and a modern age, and and many of the people in the universities were were still very much, you know, plodding along. I mean, they were doing you know science, they were doing groundbreaking science. Don't get me wrong, but but when it came to like, making imaginative leaps, certainly in the area of like, advanced aerodynamics, like with rockets, um, there was nobody there. And, and really, all the kind of, uh, a lot of the science fiction stories of the time were written by scientists kind of hypothesizing, like, could a rocket work? <laughs> you know, there were, there were scientists who wrote under pseudonyms in uh, science fiction magazines, because if they were really found out as writing these stories, they'd be you know, thrown out of their, their teaching posts. Um, so, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a very interesting time. And Parsons, it just kind of gives you an idea of the kind of imaginative power he could pull upon that this didn't worry him at all. You know, he thought, he thought, why not? Why couldn't we build the
1: rocket? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's intriguing that, like, uh, we're on the brink of, you know, talking about, well, making plans, making active plans to, um, you know, colonize Mars and people use it for, you know, this 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 term of like um, terraforming terraforming Mars mm. and so on. I mean that the phrase terraforming. I mean that comes from science fiction. Comes from Jack Wilmanson himself. He was a he was a science fiction writer that Jack Parsons knew. Um, so that's again that's it's interesting how if you told them to that at them at the time that people were you know generally sort of speculating. Well, how how can we do that now? In generations to come, in the, on Mars or whatever you, then it, that would have been quite extraordinary. Yeah, it that's is extraordinary. Absolutely. <laughs> it is extraordinary. Yeah. It's extraordinary that we're sat now having that conversation about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you think like you know, less than a hundred years ago, uh, you know, there was a guy who was studying rockets, name of Goddard, um, Robert Goddard, and he was kind of working by himself. He was, you know, he, he had been working in in Massachusetts. Uh, up in the northeast of America. And he had let loose a, a rocket test back in the 1910s, I believe, maybe 1920s, sorry. Uh, he, he had set a rocket test, which had gone wrong and it crashed into a house and set a house on fire. And he had been a university professor at the time, and he had been lambasted. He had been lampooned, he had been mocked, and he had eventually been chased out of you know New England, down to the desert, where he could do his tests by himself, but he had been so scarred by the public opinion and the media, kind of just saying he's obviously a lunatic. I mean, literally lunatic—a guy, you know, who is <laughs> obsessed with the moon. Um, you know that that he could never really work with anybody else again because he had been so. I mean, this was in the 1920s, less than a hundred years ago. Um, people were 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 driving people to despair for even thinking about making rockets.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So let's talk, because um, around the time of Parsons growing up, science fiction was really kind of blossoming, wasn't it? It was a real, um, you know, it, it become very, very popular and a, a lot more, um, I guess, mainstream at the time. But why do you think it had such an influence on, on Parsons? And, you know, maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the kind of the writers he was reading and, you know, some of the, the fiction he was looking at.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, as was mentioned, you know, Jack Williamson was this, you know, a great uh, science fiction writer of the time. And there were, you know, Heinlein was getting going and, uh, you know, uh, Ray Bradbury was just starting off as a writer at the time. And you have all these kind of great voices in this, you know, in what is basically a subculture, a subculture run by teenage boys and, and prepubescent boys. Um, they're the main fans of, of these these books. Um and I think there was something about it which is just that perennial you know, escape of fantasy. There was this kind of prophetic nature to it that for a lot of teenage boys, I think at the time, uh, they really believed in. And I think you know, if you trace uh, the people who worked on the space uh, race back in, in the 60s, um, or even you know, somebody like Wernher von Braun, they were all reading science fiction because this was the only place where those ideas were being discussed. And I think for Parsons, he's there. He's a bullied boy. They offer a kind of escape from his life at the time, but they also offer a practical uh, guide as to how to build rockets. He was even with his grandfather. He'd been making little cardboard rockets in the back garden. Uh, he had been, you know, filling cardboard rolls with gunpowder and and just setting them off like basic fireworks. But somewhere within the literature, even though it was aimed at a you know a quote juvenile audience. Uh, there were enough details and there was enough respect for the ideas by these writers. They thought, I'm not just going to say there's a rocket attached to a ship. I'm going to tell you how the gunpowder in the rocket is is shaped. Is it a honeycomb shape or is it a staggered shape? Does it fire off like a machine gun, you know, one blast at a time? Or is it, uh, you know, all in one thrust? I mean, just these, these kind of great ideas for, you know, I guess it would be a bit like thinking about, I don't know, what would the equivalent be today? I mean, we've really gone so far in the technological <laughs> distance that nothing quite seems impossible now, but maybe thinking about cold fusion or something like that. Yeah. It's the idea that, I'm sorry. Yeah, I would like oh, like quantum computing.
1: That's you know yeah something yeah, something something really I was going to say time travel but I thought that was maybe pushing it a bit too far. <laughs> yeah. Well, well but,
2: but, but I don't think I don't think it's as crazy. I, I really think that response to time travel is similar to how people would have responded to rocketry. I mean, it really wasn't anywhere on on people's radar. <laughs> I mean, radar wasn't on people's radar at the time. But but. You know, I really think rocketry was seen as ridiculous as time travel, and that's why it's hard to imagine something now because almost everything seems vaguely possible. Freezing people and waking them up—you know, some people are trying that. <laughs> Teleportation might be tricky. You know, time travel might be tricky, but that's it. It's like one step beyond what seems possible. Um, and so, I, I think for a lot of people at the time, it offered—you know—things were a lot more rigid. I think, you know, a lot of. But scientists didn't want to try and, try and shake things up because that just wasn't how science was working at the time.
1: Yeah, like, like uh, sort of Blake says, you know, What's is real, what is real now was once but imagined. And uh, it's, uh, it, that, that's a prophetic thing, especially in this sort of field, isn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it's, it's rather good of you to bring in Blake because I think there is a kind of visionary sense of it at that time. I mean, even though you know there, there were these rocket societies set up around the world by teenage boys reading science fiction magazine, magazines, and you know they had a kind of there was obviously the, the scientific, the technical proponent of it, but there was also this dream, this vision of yeah, we may only be able to fire a rocket twenty feet in the air and it explodes, but one day that rocket will get us to you know other planets, to other worlds, to other life forms, perhaps. I, I think there really was something. It's strange to think about it now in terms of science, where it doesn't really seem as as well mystical is the wrong word, but there isn't that kind of almost religious belief in it. So,
0: how did um, Parsons kind of get involved in rocket science, in in the sense of uh, like Jet Propulsion Laboratories, that kind of that side of things? What, what where's the kind of connection uh, point that they you know, I, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm, I'm ve- uh, feigning ignorance here <laughs> for the listener's sake, but there's obviously a connection that happens um, between people at Caltech and Jack Parsons. So I was wondering how, could we discuss how that
2: kind of happened? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean Parsons and, and his his best friend at the time, a guy called Ed Foreman, had been making rockets kind of in their back gardens and, and in the, the Arroyo Seco, which is this kind of river valley nearby. And they had done all they could do, and they thought they needed some help. And they so they went to Caltech, and they literally just walked in, and they you know went to go and see somebody. They said, "Who's working on rockets here?" <laughs> and of course, nobody was working on rockets, but uh, there was one guy who had been you know working a little bit on helicopters, and who was seen as kind of like the the, the kind of out there guy working at Caltech, uh, and his name was Frank Molina. And Frank Molina. Was a great. He was a maths whiz, and he was a very intelligent guy. And he got together with Parsons. He also read, you know, Jules Verne. He was a great fan of sci-fi. And he got together together with Parsons, and he read Parsons' notes. Parsons had been taking notes about all his rocket experiments. And he thought maybe there is something here, you know. And uh, he took the two of them, even though Ed Foreman and, and Jack Parsons weren't members of Caltech. He took them to see his supervisor, who was. Um, the great scholar Theodore von Kármán. Uh, now, von Kármán was an expert in uh, you know, aeronautics, but he also had this kind of mischievous, far-reaching thought. And he thought he was possibly the one guy in the Western Hemisphere who would have thought, sure, why not? Have a go, build a rocket, see what you can do. And so he gave them kind of free reign to, to, to build rocket engines on Caltech. And slowly but surely, as they- Experiments in the courtyards, and they were filling up little metal containers and filling them full of gunpowder, and they were exploding. And you know, these explosions reverberated around the campus. You know, slowly it attracted other kind of oddballs who were also interested in science fiction, or who who were also interested in in the possibilities of of, of rockets. And so. Slowly but surely, there was a small group, like five or six of them, no more. And they became known as the Suicide Squad because every time they did an experiment, it seemed like they were going to kill themselves. Uh, and they were kind of, you know, I think a lot of, you know, the mainstream of Caltech um, kind of mocked them, but they just carried on doing their experiments. And bit by bit, they began to create basically a science out of nothing. I mean, there was really nothing to work on, uh, and they started putting together. Their experiments, results—you know—seeing what the pressure was involved, what was needed, what fuels were best—and they created, you know, what became uh, eventually the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, just from these, <laughs> just from a couple of outsiders and one enthusiast in Caltech, and and a very, you know, uh, kind of wide-thinking uh, von Karman. They created the Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
1: Yeah, I think they were sort of. They had to, after their sort of misadventures inside the, the actual main building, they they were they were sort of removed moved to their experiments outside in the kind of shed, weren't they? Because, it, you know, because of the danger. Well, the danger. Well, they they caused lots of havoc inside, and um, <laughs> and the <laughs> danger, true. and sort of, and you know, they're still being sort of exploded out of doors and things like that. And there must have been a constant now and again. a, a explosions going off in the background and people thinking oh, oh you know don't worry it's just uh, it's just them. not yeah. uh, it's just it's just the rocket science
2: <laughs> totally I, I think that's it and they did that for long enough you know i think one time they they let out these fumes from their rocket indoors and it kind of coated everything in a rust you know with, because it was such a, a virulent fuel they were using um but eventually they pushed the Celtic authorities so far that they got sent to the Arroyo Seco to this kind of dry river valley to do their experiments. And, you know, they set up a little corrugated iron sandbag kind of shed out there and continued their experiments off the campus. And, you know, they kept going and kept going. And ironically, that's that's where the JPL is now. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory is on the very site of their first experiments uh, in the Arroyo Seco. <laughs>
0: it's amazing, isn't it? So the yeah. um, JPL were somewhat involved with, well, quite intimately involved with um, the American efforts in World War II as well, weren't they? I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It it was, uh, again, another kind of crux point in Parsons' life because, you know, they wanted Molina and and Parsons and Foreman, they wanted to make rockets that, you know, the prime aim of the rockets was to take man off the earth into space. That was their dream. But of course, it was hard to kind of justify funding for that because it still seems such a ridiculous idea. But along comes World War II. And suddenly, you know, the army is coming around, the military is coming around, saying, what have you guys got? What can help us in the battle? And, you know, Molina and and Parsons, they had these rockets, you know, pretty powerfully at this time. And they thought they could tie these rockets or attach these rockets uh, to planes' wings. And this would allow planes... Uh, you know, heavily laden bombers to take off from short runways or or planes to take off from aircraft carriers, you know, with a much shorter distance, they provided this kind of powerful punch. And this kind of really interested the Air Force in particular. And so, you know, the Suicide Squad, which by now was the kind of nascent JPL, their first kind of job was making these JATOs, they were called, these JATO rockets, the Jet Assisted Takeoff Rocket, which uh, would be attached to planes to, to take off from from jungle runways or whatever and uh, but even now even though they were making rockets the military and and jpl couldn't even call them rockets they still had to be jet assisted <laughs> you know takeoff methods jet jet was a word you could use even though they weren't jets you know they were rockets but rockets if you even attach that to a military operation people would go what the hell are you talking about
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it it's um it's yeah it's it's funny how you- how much things have changed in such a short period of time, isn't it? It's, it's only when you really start to like look back at the story that you realize actually like, you know, you're, you're right. It, it really has changed quite a lot, quite significantly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, So obviously um, one of the other major components in um Parsons' life was his uh discovery of a, um, a magical order uh, called the OTO. And I was wondering, could we, could you talk about how that all came about? How did, how did, parsons sort of stumble upon the
2: ato yeah it's very interesting because on the one side you have pasadena you know wealthy pasadena and caltech and you know science and then you have nearby you have los angeles and you have you know los angeles at this time was going through as it always seems to be going through a kind of great spiritual awakening uh in which you know lots of there were Buddhist cults, there were theosophists, there were all sorts of, you know, the I am group, uh, there were mesmerists. There, there was this kind of great awakening in the, in the 20s and 30s for something apart from standard religion. And, you know, so Parsons, I think, was, was always drawn to that kind of, uh, that, that sort of thing. Uh, he had, you know, as well as reading science fiction comics, he was very interested in myth in The Golden Bough, you know, uh, by Frazier um in in other books uh, about uh, you know magic about real tales of magic and i think he kind of treated them in the same way as he treated the science fiction books these weren't just stories these were guidelines these were you know especially the golden bough you know which is this great anthropological look at magic through the through history i think he saw it as, as well it seems to be done in a, in a very, fairly scientific way. We, we've moved on from, from certain sorts of magic to other sorts of magic. And so I think he always had this part of his character. And, and, and when he was in Pasadena, he had some friends. He hung out with a pretty interesting kind of artistic group who said, why don't you come down? There's this new group uh, in Los Angeles. Come down and see them. And he was invited to the OTO uh, one night. And it was uh, one of the services which they gave which was the Thalamic Mass they called it and it was a, you know held in the attic of this grand Los Angeles house and there was a congregation of which Parsons was part of and on stage there was a checkerboard kind of floor an altar and a coffin and Parsons was brought into this and he saw coming out of the coffin through the scores this woman you know scantily clad lady there was a priest there kind of a in almost a Pharaoh like get up, chanting these words, these words of, you know, which referred to myth, which referred to something beyond myth, this kind of mystical world. And to Parsons, this was just like the greatest thing he'd ever seen. This seemed to be an a, an entryway, a kind of door into the world of magic. And of course, what he was seeing there was the creation of Alistair Crowley. It was his OTO, Auto Templi Orientis. It was his. Philemic mass yeah, and I, so by yeah
1: i was going to say yeah i mean I, I think um a friend of parsons had a copy of Knox on packs although that wasn't a new book at the time you know? i mean that was published originally in early 1900s but um he, he found that on the bookshelf of a, of a friend and there was something in that that drew him in there was something in that resonated with him and uh yeah and as you say it's the uh, I think it's. I think they called it the Gnostic Catholic Mass that he attended, yeah. and then, then he attended meetings for about a year before making any significant commitment before actually joining. So there was that kind of um, testing waters thing. But yes, he's a you know a hungry soul, and um, and i mean i always i always think of and i'm not the only one like science fiction is a is the sort of the the modern vocabulary of the of the mythic it's a, mm. you know it's the you know it's a, from a union point of view you know the the ancients sat around I'm always I, I seem to say this in every single episode but I, I make no apology for it because it, it is is a key point you know the the ancients sat around the the feast fire and they talked t- talked about the gods and the monsters and the the, the shaman or the storyteller that you know that saw them we, we they saw them in the flames and then now we all sit around the television and the pizzas and watching i don't know the latest Marvel film, or something like that, it's it's with, you know in our caves, so it's it still speaks to the hungry soul, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> I, I I think so very much, and you know I think that's really beautifully put. It's um, and and you know both of them, both the science fiction and what Parsons, you know, was soon to find in the OTO, is this <clears throat> this idea of transcendence, which they both offer. You know, uh, there's. The transcendence of of the human from Earth, you know, breaking free of the chains of Earth and discovering a whole new universe. And there's that the same thing in theote in Prose teachings, which was the idea of, of, of freeing oneself from from one's current state, from one's you know humanity and, and becoming a kind of superhuman in a way. Um, and I think that there were those parallels that were running in in Parson's mind uh, at the same time. And there's there's
1: also. A coherent philosophy there and if you got you know if you uh, at the time an inclination irrespective of if you accept it or not it's there there's a coherent philosophy oh and I think very much that would, much I think so. that would yeah. appeal to him I know they took a it took a brief interest in I mean he probably like lots of people sampled lots of different things and but there was something about the something about the OTO something about Crowley which spoke to him in a way which these other things did not I know he had, uh, um, I think, he went to like theosophy. There was a bit of a dabbling with theosophy, and he, I think, he went to see a lecture by Krishna. Krishna, Harp, was Krishna I can't say his name. krishman <laughs> Krishnamurti, the um, uh-huh. the sort of uh, the, the one to be well, the the, the intended messiah of the theosophist movement, and uh, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He did, that didn't. It, it was a bit too milk and water, probably for him, and he, he wasn't. He didn't. it wasn't his cup of tea.
2: Yeah, it's interesting why he chose the OTO over everything else that was going on in LA, and I think there is a kind of, you know, correct me if I'm I'm going off the mark here, but there is a certain technical kind of step by step kind of feeling to the OTO which Crowley put in the kind of level by level you learn these levels, which I think. Might have appealed to his kind of scientific background that you kind of work your way, you know, slowly. It doesn't all come at once. You've got to work your way through the levels before you reach, you know, you know, the heart. Uh, but uh, it's just I think there was also something about Crowley, and I'm sure he got this, you know, Crowley's reputation. <laughs> obviously, uh, I think probably infused the OTO for Parsons at least with, with, definitely with some intrigue. Uh, you know, he I think he 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 liked the idea that Crowley. Might be a little evil, <laughs> um, uh, you know. As, as well as being this this great creator, I think there was something titillating almost about Crowley's reputation at the time. So he, um, he,
0: but in, what was kind of interesting with Parsons as well is he he showed some early signs of um occult interest when he was a kid as well, didn't he? There's a story of him and uh, summoning the devil at one point, or uh, you know, in in his childhood
2: that's right he, he he says kind of rather mysteriously in a later kind of when he was older he wrote about this moment in his childhood when he tried to uh he tried to summon the devil uh in his bedroom at the age of 12 and how he succeeded and he never tried it tried again <laughs> um and you know i'm not too sure how much this is kind of a sudden myth making from parsons later on in his life but i think we've all we've all done something like that at that age of 12 you, you've you know, maybe said Candyman in the mirror, or, or whatever you've done, scare yourself. You know, to try and see if maybe it's just right. You scare yourself to the point of belief. Um, but yeah, definitely from a young age, he was always interested in that kind of where reality ends and something else starts, um, or rather where something else breaks into reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, curiously, um, mentioned Crowley there. I mean, Crowley's mentor in the a, a, an early start, early part of his age was Alan Bennett. And when Alan Bennett was a young man, was a child, he he also decided one day that I'm I'm going to summon the devil and had some sort of experience which scared him for the rest mm-hmm. of his is that time into when he became an adult. So that it's in, it seems to be that fascinating. Is, yeah, this sort of—he's not the first or last person who's had a similar sort of experience.
0: What kind of uh, sort of effect do you think the OTO kind of had on Parsons's life?
2: You know, in general over the years. Um, so I think the OTO had a very positive effect on his life, certainly to begin with. I mean, it's not often you can say that—you know—you are fulfilled both professionally and personally. And I think, you know, Parsons was building rockets by day and, you know, studying the tenets of, of Crowley's religion of Thelema by by night. And I think he really saw the two as kind of going hand in hand, just kind of he was becoming, you know, a a new kind of man, a, a kind of space, you know, man and also, you know, a, a kind of new religious kind of man. He was a spiritual man. Um and I think I think it was very positive. Of course, every now and then the um the two worlds would kind of cross over, and so you would have this uh, kind of uh, uh, this uh, sorry, I, I, somebody was just coming in the door. Um, of course, every now and then the two worlds would cross over and and he would, for instance, start chanting kind of Crowley's poem, you know the the uh, hymn to Pan, uh, while his rockets were being tested. And you know, occasionally he'd bring scientists. From his scientific world to uh, to the OTO, and this, of course, led to certain frictions between the two. Because although he felt totally at ease between the two worlds, uh, many of the people, both in the OTO and uh, within his scientific world within the JPL, uh, didn't feel that ease between the two worlds.
0: Yeah, I found that in within the TV show, actually, that was demonstrated quite well. I mean, that was one of the they did take some. Quite severe artistic license at times, but I did really uh, enjoy the way that they showed those kind of tensions between the two in the show. I thought that was that was well done, at least. <laughs> yeah, and, al- and also the 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 sort
1: of uh, the jet, uh, the rockets, the space rockets, and and <laughs> magic uh, were two things derided. You know, where we received wisdom. You know, they were derided by the world, but he had a, he had the kind of the strength of vision to sort of um, go beyond that or or Yeah, or and I think that's
2: right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think um, you know there was something about his success at Rockets which made him push ever harder into his magic life. Because if he had succeeded in Rockets, which everybody had laughed about ten years before, why couldn't he succeed in magic, which everybody was laughing about now? You know, <laughs> um, it was it was it was a it was a really interesting way he just carried them both within his mind.
0: Mm. So we spoke briefly earlier about um one particular member of the oto uh, wilfred smith i was wondering can you talk about um parsons and his kind of evolving relationship i'd say with with smith because it, it wasn't all uh um you know uh, puppy dogs and <laughs> flowers that relationship it and then crowley kind of had got involved with that relationship at one point as well which was quite interesting
2: yeah it, it was very interesting um and you know, despite it being this great spiritual organization, there was this undercurrent to it of, you know, when is it going to make any money? What <laughs> when is, you know, Crowley in particular at this time was, uh, you know, in the late 1930s we're talking about now, the early days of the Blitz was kind of destitute, um, and he was really relying on donations from his OTO branches to survive. Uh, and so when Parsons came along, Wilfred Smith, the head of the ATO in, in Los Angeles, wrote to Crowley and said, you know, we have this great new guy. He's a rocket scientist. He's totally open to all our teaching. You know, I, I'm going to take him under our wing and see what we can do with him, see if we can turn him into a great, you know, uh, disciple of yours. And he did to begin with. I think, he, you know, he taught, you know, Parsons everything that he had to know. Uh, and Parsons indeed started to correspond with Crowley. And I think he saw this as a kind of a, a, a real you know, moving forward in his, you know, in his spiritual kind of growth. But Crowley, you know, at this time, <laughs> was cantankerous, uh, addicted to heroin, and uh, and incredibly poor. And so he was very unhappy with what Wilfred Smith was doing. And so even though Parsons was kind of beholden to Wilfred Smith, Crowley started to see this kind of discontent in uh, well, he, he didn't need to see any disconsent in himself, but in Parsons saying, you know, maybe Wilfred Smith isn't everything, maybe you should take over. Uh, and there was this kind of struggle between Smith and Crowley and Parsons, a kind of three-way struggle for who would control uh, the OTO in, in Los Angeles. And eventually, you know, Smith had try, had just been displeasing Crowley again and again and again. And Crowley, in this kind of wonderful way of disposing of somebody who was Displeasing him, just declared one day that Smith was a god <laughs> and therefore should go out into the desert and commune <laughs> with, with the, the universe on high. And it seems to me, you know, certainly that this was just Crowley kind of, you know, elbowing somebody he didn't like out the way. But for Smith, it kind of put him in a strange situation. He was a devout follower of Crowley. Was Crowley really saying he was a god or was he mocking him? And anyway what happened was that the smith eventually was thrown out and parsons took his place and became you know the head of the oto in los angeles and and crowley's man in america really on on the west coast
0: it's interesting we spoke to tobias churton not so long ago who's written several books on crowley um and he he basically implied that during this period crowley was laser focused on trying to actually move to america and um he saw that as his kind of uh, retribution, almost. <laughs> like I guess because I think at that point the ATO in America, at least, um, were, were they the only version of the ATO at the time? Yeah. Well, yeah. the only the only really
1: f- flourishing version of it, certainly. Yeah.
0: So he, I I see he, mm. he felt, oh well, I can you know eke out a good living there at least, and I have a a good flock of followers and etc. So I, I thought that was a kind of a interesting point so he obviously probably saw jack parsons as perhaps a vehicle for that i don't know also um
1: you know the w.t smith uh, and this sort of uh, magical retirement he prescribes for him it's something that crelly in his life always it did to himself I and mean, when you mentioned the golden bow i mean he, he he took a magical retirement and the golden bow was one of the books he took away to sort of study and um, you know so he went through these periods where he withdrew from the world and you know, and and had an intense inner focus, you know. Mm. Lived essentially a kind of mon- monastic life. We would you would recognise as a um, sort of mona- essentially monastic in a kind of magical sense. So what you're prescribing from W. T. Smith wasn't, you know, wasn't wasn't something he, you know, was something he was part of the curriculum basically. I think he was. I think you're right. I think he was playing two games at once. I think he was playing mm. two games. I think maybe half of Cruddy was thinking, well, you know, I think you, you know, you, well, Smith is an unknown god because we all are, and um, <laughs> and and there might be a, you know, and if he goes off to the desert and discovers that and comes back, you know, and sweeps the OTO to pinnacles of power, then, then, then all the all to the good. I think he was playing two sort of two sort of games. So yeah, yeah.
2: No, I I think that's really interesting. I think there is that there's always that contradiction in Crowley, isn't it? That, yeah. that, you know, he's, he's the kind of, you know, he, 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 he is the beast because you just can't, you can't quite get, get to grips with him at any one point. And, and you know, I, I think I, as you were saying before, uh, Ken, that, that, you know, he did want to go to, to the States. He, he thought that the States, like so many people, he thought that would be his kind of, that's his lottery ticket in a way. That's how he's, he's going to become world famous. And, and really, you know, there were so many other religions that were taking off at the time. It, I think he was a bit disappointed to find that, you know, he wasn't better well known in the states at the time.
1: I think I think the journey would probably have killed him as well because he was very physically, <laughs> quite probably. Was physically very feeble. He wouldn't have survived. Yeah. I don't. He wouldn't have survived. I really don't think he yeah. would have done. So, I mean, his ashes ended up in America. So, it, it, he got it, there eventually. Got there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: why did th- why did Jack create the Parsonage? Could you tell us a bit about what the Parsonage is and wh- why um, why uh, Jack decided to create it?
2: Yeah, so uh, Parsons, you know, when he became the head of the OTO, uh, he was also doing very well with the rockets. He had made a lot of money from the uh, from from basically turning his rocket research into a company, which was called Aerojet at the time. And so he thought he would kind of become the kind of paterfamilias of the OTO at the time, and so he. Uh, bought a big house in Pastina, one of the great old mansions, you know, that had been lived in by moneyed families for half a century. And he installed himself there and the OTO there, and also anybody else who he thought was interesting or amusing. It was very very much like a, a kind of 60s commune, but, you know, before uh, the letter. And uh, it was this great old house, 1003 South Orange Grove. Uh, and it was just full of, as you can imagine, like like prime American, uh, kind of gothic, uh, you know, kind of swirling staircases and uh, hidden uh, doorways and uh, things like this. And the OTO lived there, and he paid for them. You know, he was basically looking after everybody there. And there were also other people that he found interesting, like science fiction writers or uh, like other scientists who needed a place to stay. <clears throat> and the parsonage became both the headquarters for the OTO. But also the kind of headquarters for the cult of Jack, you know, the headquarters of the cult of Parsons. You know, they'd have ceremonies there, the OTO ceremonies, but they'd also have these parties in which the worlds kind of forcibly met. You know, Parsons really threw his his two worlds together at the Parsonage, and that's where you know you'd have scientists dressing in black robes, or <laughs> um, or you know uh, majors talking to to, uh, to engineers. It was this kind of great mixing pot of of, of the era. Uh, but, of course, the only problem about this is that, you know, you have all these raging parties, your neighbours start to resent you. Uh, and that started to happen to Jack. He, his his reputation as being, you know, somebody, you know, who was kind of verging on, you know, suspicious, somebody who was really quite out there, just started growing and growing. And, you know, with the Air Force being interested in his rockets and, uh, you know, with just the, the local police being interested in what was going on, he started to get a bad reputation throughout the neighbourhood.
0: Yeah, and obviously, uh, one of the people that turned up there um, sort of became a somewhat of a nemesis of his later, but it started off as a as a firm friend and collaborator. Let's talk about um, how the uh, the future head of the Church of Scientology moved into the parsonage.
2: <laughs> right, so. Uh, so Parsons had put an advert in the local newspaper, you know, which was basically saying, if you're a atheist or a, you know, a free thinker or anything like this, come to the house. And uh, we're not quite sure whether uh, Hubbard saw that or whether it was through. By now, Parsons knew quite a few of the local sci-fi writers. Whether it came through them, but Hubbard had just been discharged from the navy. Um, I'm not sure whether it was honorably or dishonorably, but suddenly he wasn't being asked back, and he was now in. Uh, Pasadena looking for a place to live. And he came upon Jack's house and Jack, knowing of his writing from uh, astounding science fiction magazine, kind of welcomed him in. And really there was something in Hubbard that just clicked with Jack. And it's hard now to think of Hubbard as somebody uh, who isn't like this ominous head of this mysterious religion, but by all intents and purposes, he was at that time incredibly charismatic. He could somehow carry a room, you know, uh, with the sheer strength of his personality. And I think Parsons loved his tall stories. He loved the fact that he could kind of, you know, Hubbard was renowned for for typing something like, you know, a thousand words an hour or something like that, just unedited science fiction text, just reeling it off. Um, and I think Parsons loved that ability to create stories and to create narratives, just just at the, at the drop of a hat. And so he welcomed Hubbard into his life and welcomed him into the OTO. And Hubbard, you know, if we're going to take him as a cynical human being, <laughs> which perhaps we should, uh, saw something in the OTO that would allow him to live a life of, you know, absolute luxury at somebody else's, you know, uh, dime uh, on somebody else's dime. So. Uh, hubbard started off as this uh you know this friend but soon as you mentioned uh things started changing
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it um so let's talk about because obviously hubbard appears in his life but then also someone equally as important uh, appears in his life around this sort of time as well uh, let's talk a bit about the babylon working because this became a huge um event in Parsons' life, like a, a groundbreak, you know, a earth-shattering in many ways event in Parsons' life.
2: Yeah, so Parsons, as the head of the OTO, had started to kind of veer away a bit from Crowley's teachings. Uh, it wasn't that he didn't respect Crowley, it's just that he really was looking for something visible, something tangible, which I think maybe he wasn't finding Entirely within the OTO's system, and so he started kind of creating his own magical rituals to a certain extent. And one of these was uh, the Babylon working. Uh, now he wrote to Crowley at the time, I believe, um, saying that he was he was going to do a working with his friend Ron, who he thought was, you know, very magically capable, uh, and the two of them were going to try and uh, kind of summon a, a moon child. I believe he referred to it as, uh, into the world. Uh, now Crowley thought, you know, didn't know what he was talking about. He, of course he had written a book called Moonchild, but Parsons was kind of sticking together these different magical kind of rituals altogether into his own kind of, uh, into his own kind of religion. And so he and Elrond Hubbard for, I believe it was about two months every day, uh, Began this, uh, you know, or, or taking part in this ritual, in which they'd, you know, draw sigils in the sky with a the sword. They'd light candles. They'd, you know, uh, fertilize magical tablets. You know, <laughs> basically by masturbating onto paper tablets. Uh, there was a certain amount of uh, uh, of Enochian magic being used here that Parsons had picked up, uh, and you know Hubbard who. I don't know how much he knew, but he was very good at playing along with people, decided to play along with, with, with Parsons. And so for, I think, two months, every day, there'd be these magical rituals going on uh, with the idea that somehow they would summon the goddess Babylon into the world, um, and uh, Babylon being, being she who rides the beast on the beast's back uh, in the book of uh, Revelation. And so this went on and on, and you know the other people in the house, even the other members of the OTO, were like, "What is going on? Like everything is so tense in the house. There's this constant spiritual presence, and and every now and then something would burst out of the room where they were doing their magical working. For instance, you know Hubbard one day said that there was a giant you know cloud in the kitchen, and so Parsons had to grab a sword and attack it. Um, you know <clears throat> somebody saw a banshee screaming at the window. There was this kind of very strange, uh, you know, for those uh, who don't believe it would be like a mass hysteria, but for those who did, it was like Parsons was really probing and pushing at the edges of 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 reality and trying to conjure something into the world. And at the end of this, Babylon working, he said he had succeeded and that Babylon now walked the earth. Um, of course, nobody was quite sure what he meant by that, but we were soon to see that suddenly a, a, a very strident female figure was about to enter his life
0: yeah and that was marjorie cameron um and cameron obviously um is becomes a uh, somewhat of a, a scarlet lady for him and in, in fact but uh she also you know she sort of survives parsons and um we see her appearing in the films of kenneth anger for example and so she's a really interesting character so if we could talk briefly about marjorie cameron i think um that would be that would be good
2: yeah i I, Marjorie Cameron, or, or Cameron as she was later known by, uh, kind of appeared in Parsons' life. I think she had had friends who had stayed at the parsonage, or she knew of it, and it sounded like an interesting place. And she arrived in Parsons' life, and Parsons saw her this this woman with kind of red hair and green eyes, pale skin, and he just thought, "This is 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 my Scarlet Lady. This is somebody has who has arrived to help me further my magic? You know, and he wrote to to Crowley again saying, "You know, I found her. I found the the you know the Scarlet Lady in my life." And the two of them, you know, from that point on, kind of you know performed all the sex magic rituals of uh, of the OTO that that Parsons was you know still learning or, or kind of adapting to his own uh, to his own cause. um and and Cameron became this kind of this foil to Parsons, in a way. You know Parsons was was pushing forward in his magical life, a- and Cameron kind of helped him, but also kind of undercut him. And she was this uh, kind of f- ferocious and uh, uh, and totally independent woman who would help Jack to a certain extent, but when uh, she had had enough, would leave. And as she le- whenever she left, Jack was often often thrown into a depression because she wasn't there anymore.
1: And in the end, uh, she does. She, I mean, after. Parsons' death, I mean, she does, I mean, she plays the role of Babylon in Kenneth Anger's inauguration of the Pleasure dome, And for so many people, for many generations, you know, she is like almost the iconic, well, one of the great iconic images of Babylon. So there we are, you see, there, there,
2: there's, there, there's the magic at work for you. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it, yeah, she, she became kind of what Parsons had wanted her to be, which is this kind of link to him and Crowley and, and the mystical just through herself. She was, I mean, not only the Kenneth Anger films, but her paintings and drawings um, are these incredibly powerful uh, uh, pieces of artwork, which have, you know, are being, you know, there were recent shows in Los Angeles about them. She's really being kind of rediscovered as this this kind of uh, this link Between not only between ages, between you know the past and and the modern, but also you know between that mystical era that Parsons lived in.
0: So um, obviously there was somewhat of a conflict between um, Hubbard and Parsons. Uh, I'd like to talk about that, but also this is sort of the beginning of of Parsons' decline, really as well. And um, it's an interesting. Uh, flip of the coin in a way isn't it Uh, I was wondering if we could uh, uh, look into that a little bit And
2: Parsons and the boat in particular is an interesting (laughs) (laughs) Interesting story it is very interesting I mean it seems like Hubbard stayed with Parsons for you know for some months Um, he had helped out with the Babylon working Uh, but you know what was happening in the house at the time was this kind of mishmash of, of kind of OTO principles and what Parsons thought was kind of was kind of cool, <laughs> and so there was a lot of, you know, swapping of partners. There was a it had a certain kind of, as I said, a, a kind of commune kind of vibe. Um, and what happened was, to begin with, was that Hubbard uh, took away Parsons' girlfriend. It didn't take her away. Parsons' girlfriend went towards Hubbard, and they became a couple. And I think this really affected Parsons because although he was a proponent of, you know, kind of free love and nobody feeling jealous. Um, he, he found that this really somehow got to him and you know, Hubbard smoothed it over and said, look, let's go into a business together. We don't need to fight about, you know, who we're partners with. Um, And they, they sort of had this business in which they invested basically all of Parson's savings into buying boats, into buying a number of yachts in Florida that Hubbard said he would sail around from Florida to Los Angeles and they would sell there at a mass profit. Now, I think Hubbard said, you know, he'd been in the navy. He knew how to handle boats. This was going to be great, but he had no intention of doing that. <laughs> he just wanted a boat that he could sail down to the Caribbean with Parsons' ex-girlfriend Betty, uh, and uh, and basically leave Parsons high and dry. Now, while they were buying the boats, Parsons found out about this. He he was starting to have doubts about Hubbard by this point, and he rushed to to Florida to where they had the boats, uh, only to find out that he was too late. That the boats had set sail with hubbard and betty in them sailing for the caribbean and at this point parsons went to his hotel room and he settled himself down and he began a magical working in order to get hubbard back uh, and betty back and so he began this magical working and at that point uh, you know as he as he tells it a giant storm came off the coast blew the yachts back into the harbor and parsons was able to go and confront <laughs> hubbard and betty um, he managed to get some of his money back. He didn't get his girlfriend back, and he didn't get a large amount of his money back from Hubbard. But that was the end of the relationship. Um, and from that moment on, it feels like Hubbard had kind of cut himself adrift from Crowley's teachings to a certain extent, and he you know, decided he didn't want to fund everybody in the OTA or live with them anymore. He was kind of cut adrift himself. He was lost between... What he had been and what he was going to be, he, uh, the scientific world had kind of thrown him out because he was just too eccentric. They couldn't have scientists, you know, chanting the Ode to Pan every time a rocket went off. It just wasn't done, and so he was thrown out of his scientific world and out of his 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 mystical his his religious world too, and he was left by himself. He sold the parsonage and moved to, uh, uh, you know, somewhere outside Pasadena. Uh, with marjorie cameron and that was it he was just left by himself
0: what's interesting is we had um another author on um several well we've had him on a few times but uh, several months ago um who wrote a book called the two antichrists an author called peter gray and Hmm. one of the points he made that i felt was really interesting was that of all of Crowley's kind of disciples and all of his kind of, um, I mean, because obviously um, Hubbard was never actually a member of the ATO, but he was obviously influenced by Crowley quite heavily. Mm. Especially if you read dianetics, I mean, it's, it's clearly there a oh, lot of yeah. of, of Crowley stuff. But one of the <laughs> one of the sort of sad sides of it really is that you could say Hubbard was potentially the most successful of of his, <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, I mean, Scientology's huge you know regard regardless yeah. of what you think of it um it's 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 you know the, the man did create a religion and you know it's a, a huge multi-million perhaps billion dollar uh, you know enterprise now isn't it so it's kind of a bit depressing in a
2: way <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I, as I say in the book you know I, I mean I, I remember this that that you know Hubbard was everything that Crowley wanted to be he wanted the OTO to be similarly you know, uh, a massive franchised concern. You know, I think he wanted his name to be spread around the world and, you know, different chapters everywhere. But he didn't get that. I mean, well, what he did do is kind of spur on, I think, Hubbard to, to, to actually succeed in that. But, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Dianetics, you know, which first appeared in a standing science fiction. It, 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 that's where it first appeared in science fiction magazine. And so you really have Hubbard kind of taking all he can from, from Parsons from the science fiction world from Crowley and and kind of creating his, this hybrid, which neither Parsons nor Crowley really managed to do, you know? Um, but for whatever reason, he just, he got the magic juice. He he somehow, you know, got what people wanted, which was the kind of dash of self-help, you know, some scientific mysticism, um, you know, all in a palatable not too abstruse form.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? So the, obviously the end of parsons life let's, let's let's um let's talk about that and also the the uh the the controversy <laughs> shall we say about you know there, there there are many theories of um what actually happened that on the day of his death but uh, mm. and what, what may have led up to it um i'm really interested in your take on that and uh, but let's that's that's um so we've placed him with marjorie cameron uh, let's let's talk about the kind of the final hours of jack parsons life
2: well, yeah. He, he, by this point, uh, you know, by the end of his life, he had been, you know, uh, this is during the Red Scare in, in in the United States, so he had been stripped of his scientific clearance, his top secret scientific clearance. He couldn't work on rockets. Um, this is because he had been friendly with various communists before the war, and also because he had been the head of a, an OTO chapter in Pasadena. Let's not um, you know try and sugarcoat that. But he had been kind of thrown out of the scientific world. He, he had no, you know, Crowley was dead. Uh, there was really nobody he could turn to. Even, even Marjorie Cameron had, had left him for months at a time. But at the end of their life, they had, at the end of his life, it's 1952, they had got back together and they were planning a new life together in Mexico. And Parsons had, had written to a couple of people or spoken to a couple of people, said so he was going to go down there. He was going to create, you know, some, to some people he said he was going to you know, make wine down there. To others, uh, he said he was going to, you know, to build a fireworks factory. Uh, all these different plans he had. And on his last days, he was doing various odd jobs. He had basically been reduced to kind of making special effects for film companies. That's his great explosive acumen that had, you know, helped create the science of rocketry was now making squibs, you know, to go under your clothing to look like bullets in in all the World War II pictures that were being made at the time. Um, And so he was making this order of special effects and, you know, at some point, when he was in his home laboratory in Pasadena, uh, Marjorie Cameron had gone out. He was making his uh, these explosives, we think, and at some point, an accident happened, and or was it an accident? <laughs> That's what we have to know. Now, the straight-up journalistic argument, uh, you know, analysis of this is that he was mixing chemicals for this special effects company. He you know, had often taken lots of methamphetamine to kind of get into work long hours. He had sweated a lot. Just people always mention he sweated a lot and he had dropped a container. He was making the special effects in, he had gone to grasp it and it exploded. Uh, you know, when his body was found, he was still alive, but half his face was kind of torn off and his right arm was missing, which, you know, they would say he had tried to grasp the falling, uh, beaker of explosive mixture, but, uh, but he hadn't reached it in time and it had blown off his right arm and half his face. So that's, that's the, the journalistic thing. But other people say, well, he was upset at the time. He had lost everything. You know, could this have been a suicide? Could he have just had enough and decided to, to, to kill himself? You know, he knew how to deal with explosives. He wasn't an idiot. You know, would he really have dropped you know, explosives while he was making them? Uh, was that the sort of thing he wanted? And you know, still others said, well, he didn't seem unhappy. Are you sure it was a suicide? Uh, you know, are you sure it was an accident? Maybe this was something he was actually conjuring. Was he in the middle of a magical working? You know, some people said to to create some kind of fiery kind of fire demon um, that in the end consumed him. Now, so you have kind of suicide. You have uh, you have a magical working gone wrong. You have an accident, or you have even some people have said that it was an assassination. It was a murder. Because when he had been younger, he had actually given evidence against uh, uh, various crooked cops who, had, who used car bombs to kill their enemies. And people thought maybe this crooked cop he had given evidence against uh, had tried to kill him. So there you have it. You have, you have murder, you have suicide, you have a magical working gone wrong, or you have an accident. <laughs> I, I, now, t- I personally. <laughs>
1: okay, go, on, go on. I was going to say I tend to the sort of it was it was an accident. I mean, uh, the, the, on the day it was on the day that they were going to move down to Mexico, wasn't it? Everything was packed. Every all their bags were packed, and it was a last minute request that he was attending to. It's like a last little task he was going to do, and also the the chemicals, which he shouldn't have kept in in you know inside the shed. <laughs> is yeah. Yeah, which because they were dangerous and you know very dangerous Would you understood you know he he had to move those from somewhere else didn't he when he was um somebody else hide out the place that he was keeping them so again they shouldn't have been there so yeah, yeah. so there's all those little accidents of um the messiness of uh, the real life i suppose
2: i i think you're right i mean when i in the book i i, I say that that you know is probably the the reason <laughs> Even though he was a genius with chemicals, he always had a kind of devil may care attitude, you know, to them. Um, he always felt so confident with them that I don't think he ever put any proper security procedures, you know, or, or kind of, you know, locked up his chemicals properly. And I think it probably just what he really was had been looking forward to this new life in Mexico with Cameron. Uh, and I just think it was a terrible mistake. But that didn't stop the rumors from flying.
1: Yeah, pushing the boundaries and living dangerously were were definitely part of his spirit, and uh, so that's in keeping with that. Definitely, he flew—he
0: flew flew too close to the sun. Yeah, yeah, very true. So, what's interesting with Parsons is that he's one of a very small club of a a occultists that seem to sort of endure the test of time. You know, he, you, you, you know, you have Crowley, obviously, you have people like Blavatsky and stuff, but Parsons is like. He, he's he really has endured the the story of his life the kind of myth of parsons has, has um you know has endured why do you think that is
2: it's a really interesting question i mean there is something you know uh, just having talked about his death about him dying when he did that you kind of end with this kind of you know the mystery of it but also the potential you know you you you're never left with him you know in his last days renouncing everything or anything like that he kind of ended you know, I mean, he died when he was 37. He's this kind of, and he was a striking, you know, good looking guy. But I I think there's something about the way he kind of, he bestrode both the kind of old world and the new world, which is endlessly fascinating. You know, I think there's, he is this kind of last link, it feels like to, you know, one step further than Crowley to, you know, linking, that Victorian mystical society with the modern space age world in which, you know, it's very hard to imagine, you know, mysticism really existing sometimes, you know, Um, when we're in our, as you say, our our caves, watching TV, eating pizza. um, It's hard to imagine there's much magic there. But I think Parsons kind of hints at that. He hints that even in the heart of science, you can still kind of carve out this, magical experience for yourself
0: interesting that's great that's, um, it's been great to talk to you it's, uh, to let us know kind of what you you're up to at the moment have you got projects on the on the burner as it were uh,
2: <laughs> I, I'm up to a, you know I, I, I spread myself pretty wide about things so uh, at the moment it's nothing quite in the Parsons vein but it's similarly about a, a strange situation that happened in 1974 um, but it, it's more you know, as with drawing uh, stories about Los Angeles and, and uh, the 1930s and trying to pull it out, this is, this is England in 1974 and trying to bring up all the strands that existed at that time with the three-day week, with the strikes, with the blackouts and with the hints of a military coup that almost happened in England in 1974. So, um, so you know, yeah, <laughs> that's keeping me busy. Excellent. Well, um,
0: it's been a real pleasure and we've been wanting to,
2: speak with you for a, for a very long time actually so i know it's been a while <laughs> from, from when you first from when you first contacted me to now it's been a while but i hope that was all right oh it's great thank okay. you so much
0: and we're back so how did you find that interview mr Satir? Oh, excellent!
1: Like I said, uh, it's uh, the, the book is superb. It is, it is one of the best books of its kind, and um, and and without a doubt, the, the definitive, the, the definitive work on the subject matter. So, and uh, you know, excellent, and, uh, an excellent work. Very lucid, wonderfully researched, um, and human. It's a and, and humane in the in the deepest sense, the broadest sense. You. you a sense of the humanity of the people he's talking about
0: yeah it's interesting and one mystery was revealed that was that we didn't actually realize he was british did we <laughs> no <we> it's <didn't, laughs> a poor actually. poor research in our case there well it's
1: it? a bit of an assumption an understandable one an understandable mm-hmm. assumption we won't hold it against him mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yes yeah, so, so yeah ex- excellent excellent yeah excellent stuff and 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 again I feel so grateful that he he gave his time and energy to us. So, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, Mark's been a big... fanboy of this book for a long time i it? have i've
1: i've bored people senseless with pushing it and that, <laughs> actually it does i doesn't need me to do it, it you read it but the one thing about it is it talks about if you're interested in science fiction and the influence of science fiction culture and history and in science itself that could be your way in that's it because it, it does great, great justice to that mm. if you're interested in the science part and the social history of the science relating to rockets and the jet propulsion there's that way in and, and then there's also the, of course the cult magical aspects in so all those things feed in it's like the, these free paths going in and and Pendle is an excellent writer and he does ju- real justice to each subject
0: he, he does a great job of weaving them together doesn't he yeah.
1: I see as the underlying the underlying unity of them yeah now they feed into each other things which you as we talked in you, we've talked about in the in the the chat with him you know things which were uh, initially you would think well how do those two things go together you know the science of jet propulsion and science fiction okay you can see that but how does this occult magical side of life how does that feed in but I mean but they do (laughs) they do and then and when when you go deeper into it you see that and uh, and for Jack Parsons they 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 fed his soul he was a hungry soul and they fed his soul
0: yeah it's interesting because we always say this that there's so much more we could have spoken about but with this subject there really is so much more we could have uh, and we will look yeah.
1: undoubtedly jack parsons will pop up again if
0: mm. flare up again
1: yeah, yeah and a, uh he, we, we will we will definitely be there are
0: certain recurring him. characters on this show aren't there the, uh, minute, yeah. there's mr crody obviously and then there's yeah. uh, mr grant who, who yeah. reappears almost every episode oh, it feels yeah. at the moment
1: also as well um you know crowley was a mountaineer he, he he, there was in him this drive to ascend physically to the height and jack parsons is similar in a sense he he had this drive to ascend uh physically through through rocket science you know he, there's that, that that aspiration to the stars
0: yeah it's interesting anyway if you want to um find us online uh sitting now um on instagram that's one word sitting now and um, that's probably the best place to find us at the moment that's where i spend more more time than any but you can also find us on twitter same thing sitting now uh Sittingnow.co.uk is our web home i'm slowly starting to post stories there again now um we just did one about the um efforts of stranger tractor press to put out um austin Osman spares tarot deck which has never been released before so that'll be interesting um also on youtube sitting now uh, where you can join us um, where new content will be going up regularly. Um, anyway, uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye bye.